shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello. Welcome, dear listener, to the final episode of Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. It's going to be a bit of a long one because I've got a quite a few things to tie up, so hope you're sitting comfortably. Hard to say, but it feels like a phase of my life might be finishing up. I've been telling the long-winded and frequently distracted story of how I came to be here in music, and this final episode is coming out to coincide with the final song on Only the Shit You Love, which, uncoincidentally, is the future sound of nostalgia, a song about why I like writing songs, the hope that maybe out there someone is reacting to my music in the same way I reacted to my favourite music. If you've been following my career all the way, you might know that a version of this song has already been released. As a bonus track for the album of the same name by the DC3, the band that preceded my current incarnation in the disco machine. At the time I wrote this song, I thought, this might be the best song I've ever written. It was a source of quiet pride that I'd written a conventional, serious song that was some way toward being half-decent. It came late in the process of putting together the first DC3 album, and my two comrades in that band, Henry Graver and Doug Lee Robertson, didn't seem to burst out of the blocks with enthusiasm when I played it to them, so it got left off the album. I didn't really feel like arguing for its inclusion or just railroading them and insisting. Either of those options would have required 100% conviction in my mind that this was a song worth the fuss. And, of course, I've never had that blind, decisive sense of my own rightness that seems to come so naturally to some people. I did also like the idea of a title track of an album coming out as a B-side. Its perversity appeals to me. But, well, you know, it's annoyed me ever since. And when I started to put together a string of songs that seemed to be about the battle between the Vaseline-lensed past and the stark, harsh present, the future sound of nostalgia just seemed right. So I dusted it off, gave it a fresh coat of paint, asked the wonderful Liz Stringer to give it a different-sounding perspective, and now, here it is. The final statement. Hmm, sounds a bit like a musical exit interview, doesn't it? I don't know about that, but I do know my musical career has stood on the edge a few times. Curled its toes over the abyss, considered lobbing the towel into it. Sometimes the voice gets loud, and it says, Time to knock the fucker on the head. I said that once on stage in that other famous band of mine. It was time. Sometimes you just know. Okay, close your eyes and picture a kitchen. Grandma sits across a formica table from her grandson Kevin, a.k.a. Ragnar, lead singer of a speed grind prog black thrash math new symphonic sludge rococo metalcore band. Grandma, are you still playing in that group with your friends, Kevin? What's it called? Kevin. Um, yeah, Nan, clears throat. It's called, lowers voice, uh, deep fried abortion. Grandma, that's lovely, dear. You know, I often think about that moment in the lives of guys like Kevin, guys in bands with those hilarious evil names, scrotum staplers, mighty sphincter, barbed wire condom, wall of smegma, Fecal Taco, Smother Teresa, Preschool Tea Party Massacre, Ballsack, Abuses of the Clergy, Rhino Clit, Urine Bong, Cock Spear, Adolf Satan, Cunt Saw, Anal Cunt, Shit Scum, S Club 7, I could go on. Anyway, I often wonder about that moment of self-awareness, when they can no longer bear those embarrassing conversations with Grandma. Being in a band is like having a tattoo. It costs you money, it's quite painful, and you think, 
No way am I ever going to think this is silly. The difference with bands, though, is it's easier to get rid of it when you do inevitably think it's silly. And there does come a time, you know. Obviously, it takes a bit longer if you're Lady Gaga, and by that time, it's too late to do too much about it. But for 99.9 recurring percent of young rock groups and wrong artists, it comes somewhere between five and ten years, around the time you start forming meaningful relationships with human beings not staring at you from a mirror. Look around you in your workplace. That IT guy over there whose answers you never understand. You know, like you say, Phil, how do I get my computer to stop making that noise? And Phil says, Wednesday. Anyway, you know him? Well, he was probably once in a band. Or that risk manager who's forever ruined the word risk for you. She once made Triple R's album of the week. She packed it in because after five years of EP launches at the Tote, her snooty 35 followers moved on, realising that what once was hauntingly fragile eschewing of the patriarchal hegemony of Western tuning was in fact a sloppy guitarist without any memorable songs. The life cycle of an idea is referred to by marketing types as Gartner's cycle of hype. You can express this cycle as a little sort of graph. The vertical axis is expectations and the horizontal is time. The life cycle of an idea starts down low on the expectations axis at innovation trigger and then goes up, up, up to peak of inflated expectations, plunges down into trough of disillusionment and then rises on a gentle slope of enlightenment towards plateau of productivity. The cycle of hype. For people in bands, it's not the cycle of hype, it's the cycle of hope. And there's no slope of enlightenment at the end. It's just four phases. One, let's form a band. Two, we're going to be fucking great. Three, we're not fucking great. Four, let's quit. And at some point in about 1984, I reached phase four. I decided to quit. I was coming to the end of my uni degree. I was staring down the barrel at full-time employment, a career as a teacher. No finer or more noble a career and no shame attached to it. And this adolescent quest of mine to be in some famous band, well, it started to seem a bit silly. Rock stars weren't me. They were rock stars, somehow different from us common mortals. I mean, picture this scene. It's an office photocopier, 10am on a Monday. Man at photocopier. Collingwood didn't look so good on the weekend, Dave. David Bowie, in full Aladdin scene period get-up. You're not wrong, the coach has got to go. Or try this one. A suburban street. Woman. Hi, Keith. Is it green bin this week? Keith Richards, wheeling a recycling bin out onto his nature strip. Nah, love, just the standard bins this week. These examples don't quite work. Rock stars don't put the wheelie bins out. They just don't. Well, that's what I thought. I distinctly remember having the conversation with myself. You gave it a shot, Damien, and you failed. Better look up from your reflection in the water and see the world going on around you, my son. And so I turned up for work on my first day at Croydon High School, thrown like the proverbial Jesus botherer to the lions. There was more than plenty to fill up my mind. But it seems whenever I decide to hang up the self-preening stick, something else happens. I really thought my music career was over, but it wasn't. It was just about to start. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. That other stuff I'd been doing, that silly, fun stuff, the real me as opposed to the treehouse chasing me, suddenly grew a great big pair of stilts and vaulted right up over the treehouse and into the stratosphere. Left those cunts in my slipstream. For the next 20 years, I went on an adventure with a group of friends that took us across the country and over the seas, 
to the upper reaches of the charts, to the centre of the zeitgeist and back. Buy me a drink in a pub one day and I'll tell you about it. For 20 years it consumed my life. Well, that is, the bits of my life that weren't occupied by a continuing full-time job and the really important stuff, doing my best to earn the love of a beautiful wife and a beautiful family. For 20 years, the tension between those three was often hard to manage. I juggled it somewhat crappily. And then one day, it ended. Me and my friends, we decided it was time to knock the fucker on the head. I don't regret that decision, not for a second. It was the right one. But at the time, it did feel like I'd quit music. I remember when I came home and told Jane, she reacted like I'd just had a bereavement. Incredibly selfless of her, because that band had often taken me away from her, if not always in body, certainly in mind. But that was how she reacted. And it hit me then. Oh, right. Have I just gone and chopped off a whole bit of my psyche? It was like that for about a day. And then, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. I went, hang on, I've been writing songs as part of a committee all these years. Maybe I can write one all by myself. And with that, I made the best decision of my career. Well, maybe the second best one after, hey, let's make a tape of these silly lyrics back in 1983. I decided to come out of the closet musically. I can tell you now that someone tried to persuade me that this was a bad idea, and maybe he was right. I was doomed to never reach the heights of that former band of mine, always damned by association. A 40-something guy starting a music career in relative obscurity, playing small-time venues to small-time crowds, and always inviting unflattering comparisons to a band that was huge in a different era. He was right. That's how it's played out. But he was wrong. It was the absolute best thing I could have done. When I'm having my last cogent thoughts and I look back on my life and my musical career, I'll think, thank Christ I did it. I've come to realise over the years that I'm not really a musician. I'm sort of, well... The closest thing to it is an auteur, a terribly pompous description. Maybe the less flattering one, control freak, is more appropriate. But I've always had this helicopter view of the musical projects I've been involved in. I know exactly how it should sound and look and feel. I know how each individual part should combine to form the whole. I don't necessarily know how to play each individual part, but I sure as fuck know how it should sound. And for nearly 30 years of my life, I had to stand there, eternally frustrated, while other people fucked around with it. Often, they would do great things that I would never have thought of, but just as often, they'd ruin the sound in my head. That frustration began to make itself more and more noticeable in the later work of that band I was in. Many of the songs are cluttered by all kinds of production details, samples, beats, a whole bunch of clattering noise that seems at times to be drowning out the central idea of the song. It's the sound of me inside the closet bashing the door to be let out. And in 2004, I got out. My first project, Root, started out being as different as I could possibly make it from that previous band. Country rock, with real musicians, a real drummer and all. It wasn't me fully striking out on my own. Without Henry Graver, all this talk of coming out of my closet would just be pissing in a gale. Henry was another of the bits of incredible fortune that have happened in my life. He was very much a man of strong ideas, but he and I were able to work together in a way that allowed me to develop as a songwriter. Doug Lee Robertson was also a very special part of that phase of my little journey. Plus, I was lucky to work with such a brilliant musician as Steve Pay. I owe these guys a lot, and I reckon we did some pretty good work together. By the time Root got to our second album, my auteur control freak Mr Hyde had fully formed and bumped off Dr Jekyll. Surface Paradise was a kind of song cycle or concept album, and wasn't even remotely country rock. We were still performing in cowboy hats and embroidered outfits, though. 
and I started to feel trapped. There seemed to be a whole scene of bands who looked like us, older blokes putting on cowboy hats and playing rootsy music in little venues around Melbourne's inner north. We looked like them, men on the wrong side of sexy, but we sounded a world apart from them. I was starting to muck around with drum machines again. And how many rootsy inner north bands write lyrics like me? Approximately zero, I would have thought. It was time to quit. But then, just when I thought I was out, well, you know the rest. Towards the draggy bit of Roots' not-so-world-dominating lifespan, we were doing another small-time gig in another small-time venue in Hobart when this guy came up to me after the show and started babbling, or so I thought, about this art museum he was building. I, not unreasonably, assumed he was, as they say, three sheets to the wind, and was looking for a way out of the conversation when I noticed the barmaid behind him signalling frantically to me that I should pay attention. He was David Walsh, and what he was saying to me was completely unbelievable, and yet it not only turned out to be true, it massively exceeded his outlandish claims. I am a maths genius who has won a fortune gambling and instead of blowing that up my hooter, I'm going to build one of the world's greatest art museums on a little bit of land near Glenorchy and turn Hobart into a destination for world tourism. Imagine saying that, and yet that's exactly what happened. The museum is Mona, Museum of Old and New Art. If you haven't been there, I reckon you order. I could spend an entire podcast telling you why. It's not just a place of full-on, world-famous art. It's a piece of art in itself, and a window into the mind of a bloke whose life is in itself performance art. David Walsh is one of the most distinctive, brilliant and interesting people this country has produced. He's not everybody's cup of tea, and when you meet him, he's a bit challenging. He sort of doesn't fuck around with pretending to be nice to people. But he was yet another amazingly lucky thing that happened to me. David basically commissioned me to produce something to go with the art in his opening exhibition. No other constrictions. Just write some stuff to go with some of the art. And David being David, he was more than happy for me to belittle or trivialise or throw red herrings at the art. It was simultaneously the most exciting and scary opportunity I'd ever had. Write some songs that people will hear in this amazing place. Me and capital letters art occupying the same space. Thrilling stuff. But then, what the fuck do I write? At this point, you know, it's hard not to sound like some TED Talk person spruiking the benefits of rising to a challenge and fully realising one's talents, blah, blah, blah. But in real terms, it was like this. I've only just taught myself how to write songs solo and I've snuck them out in this country rock band that no one noticed or gave a fuck about. Now I've got to write songs for a world standard art museum for a guy who gets out of bed and goes and buys a Sidney Nolan or a Jean-Michel Basquiat. I'd better fucking make this good. Can you imagine how that voice of self-doubt was having a field day? But I pushed on, dear listener. And it became the album known as Versus Art. Did I succeed? Well, it was a bit hit and miss. I listen back now and think musically I could have written a few more pop songs. But lyrically, it was definitely the most ambitious and best thing I'd done to that point. The museum wasn't built when I was writing the songs and I never saw the art that I was writing about, not in person. I just had a spreadsheet of thumbnail pics. My job was to stare at that thumbnail pic and go right into the painting or sculpture or video and see what happened in my imagination. Not write about the art. That would be too literal and sort of like a shithouse 80s pop video trying to tell the story behind a song. I wrote songs despite the art, I would later say. So, one bit of art that got my brain going was a piece by Damien Hirst. What looked like a completely black canvas was in fact 
thousands of squashed flies coated in resin. Hurst gave it some weird title that meant something to him, no doubt. Cholera seed, I think it was. But my mind went somewhere else. I thought about what you would think when you were standing there in a museum looking at this canvas full of flies while surrounded by chin-stroking academics in a severe fog of reverent contemplation. And I imagined a court case where disbelief is on trial for calling this canvas full of flies a bunch of lies. There's a famous painting by Magritte called Ceci n'est pas une pipe. I hope I got the pronunciation half right there. It's a painting of a pipe, and translated into English, the title is This is Not a Pipe. So, in my wanky best attempt to allude to that, I wrote a song called Senepa's A Bunch of Lies. <laughs> drones away Our learned friend Stacy Park while Lacey tugs his forelocks as I give you exhibit A An art installation Black as night Full of squashed insects Not a speck of white Sends a buzz through the gallery Fingers click iPhone keys As Park while Lacey face the jury He said what you see isn't literal It's metaphysical Visceral This is a door in a mankind's soul A semaphore a portal you can see was on a roll Like forgiveness from the abused Through this blackness transcendence lies Yet I put it to you that the accused Has called this masterpiece a bunch of flies It was the first song I wrote, and because I seriously doubted whether David Walsh would like it, I decided I'd better play it to him so that he could have the option to give me the arse. That's how my brain works, dear listener. I flew to Hobart with a CD of the song. Sparrows fart in the morning. David Walsh picks me up in his convertible Merc, and as we zoom off, he puts the CD in the player, and Sinipar's A Bunch of Lies booms out in his car. It's like a job interview or an exam. I'm sitting there with my psyche in my boots. And then David Walsh cackles loudly and says something like, fuck you're so cynical, but in a way that suggests it's a compliment and I realise that I've passed the exam. What followed was one of the strangest days I've ever experienced. David took me through the construction side of Mona explaining his whole thinking behind the architecture about how traditional museums and galleries tend to tower over and intimidate you as you enter, like ancient churches, and how he was building it mainly underground, a sort of story that unfolds as you go deeper into it, starting with a completely unremarkable doorway next to a tennis court. But as a construction site, I was able to see the full scope and dimension of it because it was still a skeletal structure, and it's fair to say the word spectacular doesn't quite do the job. As if that wasn't enough to take in, we then went to a humble storage facility, you know, like a Stott's self-storage, where normal people pack away their furniture while moving house. Except David had a whole section cordoned off, and in it were some of the most famous artworks in the world. We're just standing there while David pulls out a drawer and shows me an Arthur Boyd, or a bunch of coins where he picks one up and goes, that's worth a million, or a real-life fucking Egyptian sarcophagus. What exactly are you meant to say when you're looking at this stuff? Yeah, that'd go nicely in your dining room, Dave. Up to much this weekend? Meanwhile, David is talking at a thousand words a minute, telling me the story behind this painting and why that artist was a pain in the ass to deal with and how he's going to have a machine that turns food into poo and a wall of plaster vaginas and me, well, I'm not coping very well. The sluice gates have opened and I'm drowning in information and processing very little of it. 
I have a feeling that David wouldn't have minded becoming friends with me, or at least the person he imagined me to be based on my work. But I reckon I was shit-house company that day, and I've never quite recovered from that feeling. I'm sure people who meet me are often underwhelmed by how quiet I am in public. This is my classic introversion characteristic. I take time to process shit. Too much, and I shut down. So I sometimes don't appear nearly as quick-thinking in public as my persona would suggest. And that day, I was a fucking turtle on tranquilizers. I would have certainly liked to be friends with David, but even though we kept in touch for a fair few years afterwards, I just somehow never got there. But I guess at least there's versus art, which I hope David still enjoys and thinks was worth the investment. He treated me and my family to a fabulous weekend at the opening of Mona. He invited my then hastily formed new band, the DC3, to play at its opening, and again at David's birthday party inside Mona, which, you'll not be surprised to hear, was a party like no other. Versus Art was a commissioned work, and therefore David owns it, and chooses to do with it whatever he wants, and I've got no problem with that. It was released as a CD that sat inside the Big Black Deluxe Monanisms book to accompany the opening exhibition. And several of the album tracks could be listened to on your headphones as you navigated around the exhibition and stood at one of the artworks that inspired a song. The Car That Ate My Life was inspired by Irvin Verm's Fat Car, an actual red Porsche that had been made to look bloated and puffy. I wrote a song about a guy whose life's quest to achieve success, symbolised by a car he dreamed of buying, ends up ruining his life, and he never even gets to buy the car. Long hours spent, no acknowledgement, it's called continuous improvement. A mortgage came, a dream and went, as life flashed past my eyes. A wife trophy, a family. All seemed to happen around me When my kids started primary It caught me by surprise You know you should give it a rest When your toothbrush lives beside your desk Now a lawyer's always there When I talk with my wife No App was inspired by Artifact by Gregory Barsamian a giant steel head where you can peer in through the eye sockets to see an amazing strobe-flickering action scene within. I wrote a song about a guy addicted to ideas. He'd had more of a passing nod to the Velvet Underground songs Heroin and Waiting for the Man. The man leant back in his place His knowledge captured lean manufactured Wi-Fi workspace His face, a look of rote insouciance Belied the voice lugubrious In his head, insidious, invidious A chorus of idiots that said It's been three seconds since your last idea, man Your career, man, it's dead It featured a character known as The Man Which in itself was a version of The Unit who had appeared on the root track Get Up Yourself Part 2 and was based on a one-part fascinating, two-parts repellent person I knew in real life. The unit is a kind of self-appointed Mrs Mangles from Neighbours, a corporate fundamentalist taking it upon himself to report any infidel who takes the company's name in vain. Management tolerates him like he's a computer virus that only attacks people's personal files. He spends his whole time pinballing around the building, fiddling with some trinket that makes him look in tune with the zeitgeist and spouting buzzword-blown little dog turds of marketing speak like bat up an idea or drill down to the DNA. Versus Art was a real turning point for me. Unlike the two Root albums, I wrote all the songs completely solo and got the musicians to play the parts I'd worked out. I finally proved to myself that I could call myself a songwriter and not feel like a complete bullshit artist. It also allowed me to muck around with different musical styles and significantly return to electronic dance music, which I'd hitherto shied away from, partly through over-familiarity, but also to avoid setting myself up in comparison to that 
other famous band of mine. Versus Art needed a band to perform it, and that band was the new, stripped-down remnants of Root, which we rather unimaginatively called the DC-3. We were in a hurry, Your Honour. That's my only defence. I would have preferred to call us the future sound of nostalgia, but that idea arrived too late. So we ended up making it the title of the first album, containing that song I talked about in an earlier episode, I Was the Guy in Tism. The DC-3 was me, Henry and Doug, with program loops and keyboards. By the time of our second album, May Contained Traces of Nut, we'd been joined by drummer Jeremy Hopkins and had sort of morphed from the electronic sound of the first album to a pretty straight kind of indie rock thing. That album was also where I met for the first time Beck Chapman, who we'd seen singing in an a cappella group called The Nymphs, and who impressed me so much that I made a little mental note to keep her number. That turned out to be a very wise move on my part. The DC-3 lasted my now time-honoured two-album lifespan. Toward the end, I was veering off on a tangent that probably hastened our demise. I don't quite remember what sparked the idea in my brain, but I decided to dip my toe into the world of comedy. Well... Not exactly a funny thing happened to me on the way to the laundromat kind of stand-up comedy, but a show featuring lengthy, sort of stupid, surreal monologues punctuated by a handful of songs, supposedly based on Wagner's Ring Cycle and called The Ringtone Cycle. A title, by the way, which I wasn't the first to use. Not my first unintentional rip-off either, but that's showbiz. Anyway... Henry, Doug and I performed it for two weeks at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I have to say at the time I had a blast and thought it was a revelation, a whole new direction for my career to take. But I now realise it was more the enjoyment of doing a show every night, hanging out after the show in a Flinders Lane bar with the guys and our friends, the whole lifestyle experience that I enjoyed more than the comedic form of expression. That enthusiasm led to another even more ambitious show called Modern Unconsciousness, which we did at the Melbourne Fringe Festival and involved increasingly elaborate stage sets designed and built by Henry and assembled as part of and during the performance. But that show wasn't as much fun for me and even less fun for Henry and Doug, who not unjustifiably felt that the music was getting marginalised and losing its power by playing in smaller, volume-constrained venues. My runaway ego was pushing the DC-3 over the edge, and some bad gigs didn't help. The DC-3 has the distinction of playing the worst gig in my entire life. Well, perhaps with the exception of the Noble Park Youth Club in 1977. Surprisingly, it came thanks to my great benefactors, Mona. We were booked to perform the ringtone cycle as part of the Dark Mofo Festival in Hobart. I assumed it'd be like playing the Melbourne Comedy Festival, a ticketed show in a comedy venue to an appreciative audience. But that's where I was wrong. We were part of the entertainment at the festival's after-hours club. It was a great idea and typical of everything Mona, which means lavishly presented, always arty, always challenging and cerebral, to have an after-hours club which presents actual art rather than some DJ knobhead playing loud wallpaper music. But what the curators probably, well, hopefully, what they didn't envisage was the fact that the clientele of this after-hours club didn't want to be entertained, challenged and inspired by me and my fucking monologues. They wanted some DJ knobhead playing loud wallpaper music. So they completely ignored us. Didn't just ignore us quietly either. They fucking well partied, my son. They partied so loud that you couldn't hear my monologues. It was in this cavernous old theatre, so monologues were always doomed to be lost in the void. But these cunts were making a party din that was louder than the PA, and most of them had their backs to us, engrossed in each other's deeply entertaining conversation completely oblivious to the existence of me and my mates in the DC-3. 
It honestly felt like there was a glass wall separating us and the audience, and not a two-way wall either. We could see them partying, they couldn't see us. It was exactly like a repetitive anxiety dream that I had often endured, where I'm on stage in front of a huge crowd, but something is wrong and the crowd is getting more and more hostile. The only good thing about playing out that anxiety dream in real life was, well, no point having the dream again, is there? I've done it. We got about halfway through monologue two and I went, fuck this. I turned to the chaps, made the throat slit motion and we just tossed the ringtone cycle out the window forevermore, played a few songs and got the fuck out of there. If that was reinforcement to Henry and Doug that we weren't cut out to be a fucking comedy act, well, they were gracious about it. But the seams were splitting on the DC3 in any case. Henry in particular was developing a whole new career as a builder, and I think he'd arrived at phase four of the cycle of hope. One day, in true Henry style, he just quit music. Thankfully, he's back playing guitar these days, but for a long time there, he just threw himself completely into his new career. His decision meant there was a dignified way for us to put a line through our band and our very enjoyable, productive, but necessarily finite period of collaboration. It was time to quit. But of course, just when I thought I was out. I guess I'm like that character who's addicted to ideas. I started writing songs again. And this time, I was able to give myself full permission to take them wherever I wanted. To not have to negotiate their value with equal collaborators like Henry and Doug. This was going to be, like versus art, a completely solo project. From now on, the only way I wanted to work. I even tried a solo comedy show, Damien Cowell's Hara Karaoke, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. But that wasn't nearly as much fun as I'd hoped. It turned into a bit of a slog in the end. I realised it was the social aspect more than the performance that I'd enjoyed about previous comedy shows. And really, being a spoken word act just didn't appeal to me as much as making music which is why I'd gotten into this whole showbiz thing in the first place. By that stage, I'd already found my ideal musical project, Damien Cowell's Disco Machine. My ideal band. The fact that it's so far lasted beyond my two-album limit is a bit of a clue. It's my ideal band for two reasons. Number one, I run the show. That makes me a megalomaniac, a control freak, an egotist, all of the above. But it means I don't have to fight fights over how a song should be arranged, how an album cover should look, how a show should be sequenced. I'm too old to fight fights. And to sort of misquote Johnny Rotten, I know what I want and I know how to get it. Plus, there's no weird vibe in the band about who's contributing what because everyone knows that's how it works. And the second reason it's my ideal band is the people in the band. By a lot of luck and a bit of design, I have a group of girls and guys who are absolutely perfect. Talented, most certainly. But here's the precious and rare part. They're funny, unpretentious, intelligent people whose company I love. They all have their own projects going on, so they come to the disco machine as a bit of a holiday. A rather hard-working holiday, as it turns out but with the emphasis on fun. When the group assembled and we did our first few shows, I was really pleased at how we sounded and looked, but it grew wings from there. It hit me one night in a rehearsal room. It felt like I'd walked into a big reunion party of a bunch of close friends. I had to eventually tap on the old metaphorical glass to get everyone's attention so we could start working on a song, but I didn't mind at all because... Unwittingly, I'd been able to bung together a group of people who really clicked, for whom a disco machine rehearsal was an event in itself. In Only the Shit You Love, the web series, I've drawn the disco machine as a cartoon pop group, like the Archies or Josie and the Pussycats, and I quite like that comparison because everyone is larger than life, their own distinct, fun character. 
different parts that somehow mesh. Gordon Blake is the disco machine's very own ever-ready bunny. On stage, he's a whirlwind. Off it, he doesn't stop. This is the guy who will do a show, be up all night partying, and then get up at the crack of dawn the following morning to go surfing. He's my kind of guitarist, a really strong, dexterous rhythm player, and he was instrumental in helping me cherry-pick the right people to put the band together. If I hadn't met Gordo, there would never have been a disco machine. Gordo is the solar panel that powers my little grid. Beck Chapman, against some serious opposition, is possibly the silliest person in the disco machine, but also the most talented. Beck is my right hand when it comes to figuring out complex harmonies and vocal arrangements. She just does it effortlessly. And because of Beck, I actually changed my approach to songwriting, putting female voices to the front of my sound, which is something I've wanted to do for a long time. This album features Beck and M much more prominently than ever before. The very first thing you hear is their beautiful massed harmony on the word love, which sort of sums up how I feel about them. Emily Jarrett can not only sing, she's absolutely riveting on stage. She might look glamorous, all flicking blonde hair and ice-cool stare, but she is in fact a major dag, which is a prerequisite for being in this band. M is married to Will Hindmarsh, which gives us our own Fleetwood Mac kind of dynamic. I like to compare the two of them to Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham in their pomp, but without any of the drama. Will is, of course, a great keyboardist, guitarist and singer, and the two of them cut a serious rock star couple vibe. But, in fact, Will is an extremely silly man who I just find funny before he's even uttered a word. These are all big personalities, so it's handy that Gary Walker is the most relaxed, unflappable member of the band to give us all a bit of zen. Gaz is a funky drummer who has an underrated ability to perform in the most difficult of circumstances. Because the Disco Machine Show features video running in sync with our music, Gary's got to be wired up to a click track the whole time. To play relaxed and yet machine precise is a skill that would be beyond a lot of drummers. The final piece in the jigsaw to fall into place was Andy Hazel on bass. This is Andy's debut album with us, although it feels like he's been in the band the entire time. He just turned up one day and it was business as usual. You could write a separate book on Andy. The Disco Machine is one small part of a very busy, multifaceted creative life he leads. He's suavely witty and cerebral, yet completely at home, jumping like an idiot around a stage. And that just leaves Tony Martin. My friend, confidant, creative life coach and inspiration. It's hard not to be in awe of what Tony has created over the years and continues to create, and it's still a thrill for all of us to have him step into the rehearsal room. Tony clearly has a great time in his role as a part-time rock singer, and I'd like to think I'm providing him with a little enjoyable left turn in his journey. It's taken me a very long time, but I've got myself a fantastic crew of people who get me and who share my love of putting on a really big show. I like to call it a stadium-sized show for a small venue. And now, three albums on, it's more that fact that keeps me going. Watching the guys in the band going 110% performing my songs is actually a tremendous thrill and honour for me. The disco machine, as people, inspire me as much and even more than the motivation to play shows and seek the collective love and attention of an audience. I have to say, finally, after all these years, that compulsion is growing less and less important to me. And so, here we are, finally delivering the third Disco Machine album, Only the Shit You Love. The culmination of my divine afflatus, my tour de force of overreaching ambition. Has it all been worth it? Fucked if I know. Like most things in my life, I'll only get a handle on its true worth when I gaze back at it through the goggles of nostalgia. Even that itself being a somewhat illusory perspective. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Yeah. The author Milan Kundera describes nostalgia as 
the suffering caused by an unappeased yearning to return. Evoking nostalgia in pop music was not exactly fashionable in the late 60s when the so-called counterculture revolution was in its full flowering, and I do use that horticultural turn of phrase deliberately. And yet, that was what Ray Davies, the genius behind the kinks, did so spectacularly across a stunning four-album imperial phase, running from Face to Face in 1966 to Arthur in 1969, and including the 1968 pop masterpiece The Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society. Only the bits I love. Ray Davies' nostalgia was not, as it may have appeared to some at the time, simply a rejection of the modern world. Ray was both critical and affectionate about the past. He somehow managed to combine that arch, sardonic view of his, so perfectly expressed by his gap-toothed Cheshire cat grin, with a definite empathy and fondness for the characters he portrayed. Ray Davies' work during this period is full of beautiful vignettes of a bygone era, including the wonderful Autumn Almanac. I like my football on a Saturday, roast beef on Sundays, all right. I only properly listened to the kinks in the late 90s, and I became quite the obsessive, which only heightened my sense of self-disappointment that I hadn't done so earlier like, say, back in 1983 when I actually met Ray Davies. The Kinks toured Australia, and at the time I was going out with a girl who liked to go to gigs and meet the band afterwards, as I mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast. My girlfriend had briefly considered herself a mod, another topic I've previously discussed here, And on that basis, it was decided we should go and see the Kinks because they were quintessentially English and had been at their pomp during Maud's mid-60s British heyday. By 1983, the Kinks, to me at the time, felt like some kind of irrelevant old nostalgia act, a cabaret version of their own 60s selves. I watched the entire gig with that prejudiced mindset, so how could I possibly be impressed? What a fucking waste of a priceless experience. But there was more. We, of course, went backstage and, of course, met the band. And lo and behold, there we were in a brief conversation with Ray Davies. And the only reason I thought that would be of interest to me was to talk about the pretender's Chrissy Hind, who Ray was dating at that time. I can't remember exactly how the conversation went, and I'm glad because if I could, it would no doubt fill me with abject shame and horror. But I did write a song about it 20 years later. I ended up collecting all the Kinks albums, good and bad, and Ray Davies was a huge influence on my writing, even though you wouldn't spot it. I'd like to think that Ray's subtle, ambiguous reading of nostalgia has filtered its way into only the shit you love, which is my take on the suffering caused by an unappeased yearning to return. The desire to return is the crucial part, but of course, we can't go back. Many of the people who want that other famous band of mine to reunite are actually expressing that desire to return. Return to that time when they were young, when things seemed to affect them more profoundly, when life seemed simpler. Whatever it meant to them, that's the unappeased yearning they experience. I absolutely share that feeling, but I understand it's a drug that needs to be taken in moderation. I even use it sparingly in a rather cavalier way to get myself out of thinking that way and living more in the present. 
Another quote from Kundera says, You can suffer nostalgia in the presence of a beloved if you glimpse a future where the beloved is no more. And that's what I sometimes try to imagine. I'm here now in this place with people I care for. In the future, will I look back on this and wish I was back here? Well, I'm here now, so I'd better enjoy it to the fullest. Sounds ridiculous, I know, but my brain works in strange ways sometimes. I have to stop it from going into its own little time capsule. So maybe I should enjoy this podcast, this album, this web series, this graphic novel now as if I was looking back and appreciating it. Because it's just about done, and so am I. For the last four years, not a single day has gone by without me working on it, thinking about it, being affected by it. It's time for me to get up out of my chair and start living life again, in the moment. And you, dear listener, you've stayed with me, and for that, I salute you. This ridiculously huge project at this moment in time hasn't won me any awards, it hasn't made me more popular or successful, doesn't seem to have made any mark whatsoever in the landscape of popular culture. But I hope it's given you something to enjoy, something however modest to lighten your day. If I've succeeded, it's because in my own tiny, crappy little way, I've been your friend. And a friend, what a wonderful thing to be.